You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! You know, I want to see the crowd move, and I an example of this and it's no disrespect to to this band because they're amazing musicians but but dream theater we um were in brazil playing in monsters of rock and they were playing and i think i was watching the show with um with these glenn hughes and the guys from man of war were on the side of the stage watching them and you looked in the crowd they're playing through these songs and we just played and we had you know gutter ballet you had 40,000 45,000 people bouncing to the beat or ballet dream theater's playing you had 40 people playing air drums throughout the 40,000 <laughs> you, you saw 40 mike portnoy fans yeah. going crazy on air drums and the rest of the kids were trying to figure out where one was yeah have you, you know, ever tried to headbang like, a seven eight <laughs> And then all, right, of sudden, right. all of a sudden, they kicked into part of Enter Sandman and one of the songs they were playing, and the whole crowd started bouncing. <laughs> and I looked over to freaking Glenn Hughes, and I was like, see, they found one. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 2020. I am Siobhan Cronin here, well, without our other cohort, but I have Corey Peza. Ben is missing at the moment, <laughs> dealing with some sort of there's a lack of yelling and like blowing out of the eardrums. So it's, it's pretty crazy. Right. <laughs> right. We're here uh, with uh, part two with Chris Caffrey. And uh, if you haven't checked out part one, you got to go check it out. You know, especially if you're a fan of TSO, Sabotage. And, and you know, he, he's just had such a big part uh, in the musical world. And it's great to hear him talk about that project. But uh, this, this week, we kind of go a little bit more into him working with Paul O'Neill with, with TSO, but also more into his musical style and the stuff he's working on nowadays. Yeah, it, it was great to hear about his solo project and development and, you know, how he writes a lot and talking about some of his other artistic interests. Um, so make sure you listen in for this one. Don't forget to go to 2020-d.com to like and subscribe. Check out some of our other episodes. But without further ado, we'll jump right in. Part two with Chris Caffrey. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of 2020. I'm Corey Pesa here, as always, with Benny and Siobhan. And we're super pumped to have back Chris Caffrey of uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Sabotage. And he also has a, uh, a new record, Embrace the Unknown, Spirits of Fire, which we are uh, definitely excited to talk a little bit. If you have not checked out part one, we uh, we talk TSO. We talk about, you know, Chris's early career. And it's, it's just so cool. He got, he's been in the business a while, I, would be the best way to put it. So thank you for, for coming back, man. 
You know, I made sure that we all wore exactly the same thing, so it would fit image-wise, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> you could have signed off any time, and you're still here with us, so we appreciate it, Chris. I don't change anyway, so we could, come, we could actually come back in another week. I'd probably have the same clothes on, so at least I... <laughs> A, a true homebody. Well, we uh, we ended the last episode talking a lot about um, sort of the creation of TSO and Paul O'Neill. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity in playing in the string section with you guys many times, meeting him a few times. And he truly is like a, a super powerful personality. And you can kind of feel it when he walks in the room. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what it was like working with him on the production side or like recording music, because I think so many people don't realize how important he was you know, for the people that listen, I mean, it's, well, I, mean, I feel like he was so much a part of creating that vision and even the music. And it's, it's really cool to watch what he says to people, even on stage. So maybe you could talk a little more about that. Well, do you take a record like Christmas Eve and other stories, for example, or a record like Sabotage Dead Winter Dead. Now that idea of doing the Dead Winter Dead record about the war in in Sarajevo and, and, and Yugoslavia and that whole thing. That was his idea. Now he wrote the lyrics and the story and it was our responsibility to write songs that were going to carry those personalities. And that's where the whole element of his rock theater element came into things where, you know, your songs and we were lucky with Sabotage because on that record, at least we had Zach and John had done some songs. So you're able to throw the different voices in, but that's what had happened with, with TSO to now, okay, he has these characters and he wants the female voice to be a female. He wants, you know, the father voice to be an older male. He wants the, you know, the, what he feels to be a, the, a blues guy to be a raspy older, you know, blues kind of voice singing and, and he wants this one voice, which he hears to be the beginning of his story, to be kind of more of a Broadway, you know, type of clean tenor voice coming out to sing this. So he would have these visions of what the voice was going to sound like, almost the same where you go, well, I'm going to use my telly for this song. I'm going to use my Strat for this song. I'm going to use the Marshall. I'm going to use my Wawa pedal. He would hear human voices like that to match his his vocal ideas and that you know of course was very important to the way these records went but you know working in the studio with him as a guitar player it was funny he would produce we'd produce the songs and the arrangements and then he'd kind of let me and the engineer go do our layers of everything because everything was was layered like some of the sabotage records i would have you know two guitars left hand two guitars right and he had a little trademark thing that we would do with uh, a clean telecaster of just kind of clicking the string notes so he would want to mix it in if he thought there were times you couldn't even hear the guitar pick the, as much yeah. as he wanted for it was definition like a clean, yeah it was a clean tele track that we would do so he would know it's like all right this is what i need you to do so he would kind of just let us go and he'd be working and he'd be sitting at the control desk and he'd have, you know, whatever food, junk food or whatever it was he was eating at the time. And he'd, he'd, have, he'd go through his phases of what he'd like to eat or, or drink with soda wise. He was, and he'd have a stack of magazines and a stack of newspapers because he was very intelligent and he always liked to read and learn. And, and you would think he wasn't even paying attention 
and all of a sudden you'd be like, what was that? I'm like, huh? <laughs> and he would hear like a string scrape as you're playing and you'd go rewind to it and be right, right there. And it's like, you don't even think he was paying attention. Rewind to it. Talk yeah, about a different time, right? Rewind it. Thing. And it. And the way he was with solos and things like that, he would want you to do more than you needed to. And his reason for that was, even though this take may have been good enough to make the record, he would always think there could be a possibility you might do something better. And luckily, we had the budgets that were able to let us do that at the time. So it was kind of, you know, where you would you would play again. And sometimes you would come up with something completely different that you would surprise yourself with. And he'd be like, that's what I was thinking you would maybe and he would just go that or we would come up with what we had and he'd be like well i just was just wanted to you know peek around and see what you might come up with and that and that kind of thing and you know before computers of course we weren't allowed to um really change tempos the same way you can now and it was always a problem with being a guitar player because you can't slow down a song and keep a distorted guitar tone the same or, or so we had a song on the poets and madmen record that was like eight and a half minutes long and i recorded it three times so you got to figure it this way that's like two songs three times all of it had clean guitars on it too so you had four tracks of distorted rhythms stereo tracks of cleans that telly thing so just keep doing the math on that three times of all those tracks. I literally spent like three full days because he changed the tempo a couple times. And the end of the song, I didn't realize that I wrote this riff that when I did the first rhythm track, there was little pick clicks because there's a long end of the song with all these counterpoint vocals, which is a big trademark of TSO and Sabotage. I was alternating whether I was clicking once, twice. So we sat there and Paul's like, no, just listen to it, stop and do what you did. So we were doing tape rolls and getting it. But when you had to do that eight times, you know, it was like, you know, it, it just kept going. It was it was three different things through. But, you know, he was a perfectionist with what he did in, in the studio and he would take it. I think a lot further than all, many people he would listen to the mixes and be like, I want to snare drum up a half a DB. And our Dave Whitman, our engineer, would be like, after a while, he would lose his mind. He'd be like, Paul, who hears a half a DB? And it would just be like, what of these things? Or Paul O'Neill heard a half a DB. So you'd have to bring it up a half a DB or down a half a DB. But it was, you know, it was just, a magical thing with him it was it was different you know going to the studio was you know like living my own reality tv show i wasn't always playing but i was always there i would go to the studio because i was one of those he was very private about who would be in the studio you know and, and even with some of the band members he just didn't want everybody around all the time but me and oliva we were like his i think we were kind of like his entertainment so he liked to have us there always, you know, if he wanted to bounce things off their heads or if somebody happened to show up, he had somebody there to introduce them to or things. So we were just always there, even if we weren't working. We were going in there to hang out and listen to him talk and, like I said, get 
one day it'd be sushi the next day you'd go to steak today like all right get me the 70 dollars t-bone like, it was just fun i mean it was it was a different time for us all with him what do you think you miss most about him being around because you've mentioned like he just sounds like a visionary he sounds like he just had such a a way of executing the the thoughts in his mind which i truly believe is so important i've said the quote in the past but frank zappa used to say that you know the best thing you could ever hope for is that you know people can complete the idea that you hear in your head but that almost never happens and it sounds like he was very adamant about making that happen yeah i don't know i i think sometimes it's weird I kind of miss the chaos. Because <laughs> things were always, he would walk in the room and it was never like we were doing an arena show and he was out of town. Everything was like, he'd walk in a room. It's like the, the meter <laughs> just went different. It was a different day. And I think there's just, at the time, you know, you were like, oh God. But now I think that, you know, with that, chaos is gone every day kind of goes like this you know mm-hmm. and, and it's an energy shift yeah it's not that that's a bad thing because on a level of one to ten we're probably at a 9.99999 but it's like he he just had that thing that made it go to 11 you know it was like there was something about one him. more yeah there was something about him that just look at some of the videos when he water out on stage with us i was watching one forget what we were doing he came out on stage we were playing um i think it was radio city music hall with the beethoven's last night tour and he came out during the mountain and some other i think one of the other sabotage instrumentals that we we re- recorded for tso and, and um <laughs> you just watch him come out and he's throwing the sunglasses out there and he's just he's on it's just there's that you know uncontrolled chaos that was perfectly controlled by him because he knew what he wanted to do or what he was doing, but it only happened when he was there. So there was just something that, you know, you always knew when Paul was there, besides the fact that there would be like a whole pile more of merchandise you knew that was going to be handed out around the venue by him when he went wandering and there was a room with his name on it and the dressing in the hallways when you walked in the room it's like paul's coming you know and for me it was weird because there could be thirteen thousand people in that arena and i'd look back at the soundboard and see him standing there he had those glasses on and i would get nervous because i would think like even that far away through those sunglasses he has to be looking at me <laughs> so, you know it's like he would always feel like he's if you hit one wrong note, it's like, oh, shit, he had to have heard that one. But he'd come up on the stage and he'd be like, it was God, boss. And he'd always, but he always made me feel like I, you know, I had to be even better when he was in that room. It was just something that he had. But I think now that he's passed away, I, I, I try to keep that element of he's always watching there because now he could be, you know, yeah. he could yeah. be there every day you know before yeah. he wasn't able to be there every day now he can he doesn't well, speaking need- of yeah i mean he really did notice everything and of course i didn't get to interact with him on the level you did but i remember you know usually as a string player you're pretty peripheral and a lot of people don't notice you if you're on a tour you're just kind of in your own section but there was one show i played that he was there i think it was the first show of the tour 
And uh, he stopped me after the show and he's like, great hair. What year were you born? And I'm like thinking like, what? And I was like, oh, uh, 1989. He's like, all right, hold on. I've got something for you. And then, you know, with the sunglasses on, the leather jacket, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a silver dollar. Says, this is from 100 years before you were born, 1889. He said, hold on to it. And then he asked me my name and he was just like, great hair. (laughs) (laughs) Just disappeared into the night. And I still have that silver dollar. So yeah, I still have it. Silver dollar saloon. Yeah, no, I have a a lot of silver dollars too. And and, um, I always wanted to get together with him because he had a big collection of them. And I like to collect the ones that have the... uh, the rainbow coloring on them that they get from being in the outside of the tubes because silver does a very unique rainbow coloring they're all different in in shades but it's something that silver does really cool and i never got that chance to sit down but that yeah paul was very into the hair thing it's like he because he you know we're in an arena and and people are kind of far away from us so you wanted it, you to look like you were a guy in a rock band paul's you know Guy, he was a child of the 70s and everybody was, you know, Aerosmith, he managed Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and, you know, it all, everybody was, it was all about that. And um, it was funny when we were doing the first auditions for East West TSO, Sabotage had a convention in New Jersey. There was a Savicon, it was called. All these kids came out to give us a question and answer and there was a couple bands playing and one of them had a bass player in it that I thought was really cool. He kind of reminded me of the bass player that was in King Diamond's band when Sabotage toured with them. His name is Hal Patino. And, and I got Hal was in the Dr. Butcher thing that I put together with John. And this kid just reminded me of Hal. He had long, curly hair. And he was just, you know, he was a pretty badass performer. And I, I told him, I said, give me your number. I, I said, I don't know what, but we're going to use you for something someday. And that was David Z. Oh yeah. Wow. And um, I called up David and Mike, you want you to go down to SIR in New York and Paul wants to meet you and, and hear you play. So David walks in the room looking like one of the kids from new kids in the block. He shaved, he cut all of his hair down super short. And I was like, I'm doomed because the, the long hair was what I thought Paul was really going to like. And I introduced him to Paul and I could see, you know, Paul was just like, because I told Paul he had long hair and he met him. And, but then there was just something in his personality that Paul loved. And then he played his bass and and did his thing. And Paul just fell in love with him. He was such a talented kid. And, and uh, you know, the that look was something he carried well and and people liked it and he did his little dances with his bass that were a big part of his his stage thing he had a very unique and very mobile stage performance that a lot of times did go almost dancing and um it just worked really well for him but it was kind of funny because i was that's why he has a nickname of skippy because oh i always wondered okay he wandered he wandered by the way guys i got just heads up i I gotta run for now so because i'm gonna go drain my knee but I just wanted to say, Chris, <laughs> thank you so much for my for my part right in the middle of your of your story. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. Like I, I love everything about like what you do, and we we really appreciate you coming on the show. So I'm sure Corey can edit out this the silliness. But I, I just wanted to say personally, thank you very much, man. No, no, thank you for having me, and I hope your uh, 
you need you get what you need <laughs> yeah uh, some uh, an effusion ben all is right, a true gentlemen. old man of the group here uh, i really am dude you have no idea all right, all right i'll talk to you guys man. soon all right Cheers. bye ben bye <laughs> yeah so i i looked at i looked at david and i he walked in the room and i go what are you doing i said david he goes what i said I said, I met you three months ago and you looked like Hal Patino from King Diamond. I said, now you look like freaking Skippy from Family Time, Family Time or Guy. What was that family? Uh, Skippy was a. a, a Is that Ties? Uh, family Ties. Yeah, yeah, it was in a Family Ties. I said, you looked like Skippy. And he did without the guy. He looked like that guy Skippy. That was the hair. That's the first thing I could think of. And then I just started calling him skippy and so did everybody else and that's where the skippy came from because he wandered in there and it's all his hair was cut off and then you know i'm gonna have to put the picture up on the on the video podcast just because it's it's yeah i think it was family ties (laughs) yeah yeah. Yeah. mark price that was that was that but paul yeah he always he he loved the the image he liked people to um to be you know full-on rock in the right situations as he would call it he wanted us to be rock and roll stars and and you know he worked with some of the best i mean like he was out working for um for aerosmith you know when he was was very young he he got involved doing a lot of stuff on their tours when when he was uh probably not too much older than i was when i uh was working you know he got out there so he saw he saw those guys in there he was he had joe perry and sleeping on the management couch sometimes so it's like he (laughs) he witnessed a lot in his life so right yeah it's funny we talk about look and and you mentioned joe perry and (laughs) we've we've gone into great detail about how joe perry like embodies the look of rock and roll like as soon as he wakes up (laughs) when he goes to bed he's he's got like the full-on chain teeth Yeah, 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 no, I, I, I don't have that much patience to, to worry about that much of how I look. Plus, I live in a place that doesn't have a whole lot of neighbors, so I don't really work at, worry about it. Although, <laughs> the, the Google Earth thing kind of creeps you out. It's like you look at that, and it's... <laughs> it's like, it is a little weird. You'll be fine. Could, wait a second, they could see me naked in my hot tub from the sky right now. <laughs> so, I, I want to talk a little bit about you know, what you are up to now and, and kind of, you know, a little more about your guitar playing in preparation for the podcast. You know, I went, went through, listen to some sabotage, listen to some TSO, listen to some of the new stuff you put out the, uh, the spirits of fire. And I know one thing I noticed from every project you're involved in is the way the guitars and the rhythm section are so cohesive. Like there's something really cool, about all, you know, the riffs and, how, and the way that everything connects and is very powerful and like almost a very united force uh can you talk a little bit about your you know guitar playing and your guitar style well i think the fact that i started professionally as a rhythm guitar player probably had a lot to do with just the way i hear music i mean i'm like i said there's millions and millions of guitar players that can play lead guitar and great lead guitar and this and that but there's just something to me about people always say about that you know Malcolm Young thing or or the the people like James Hetfield the, the ones that really are really great rhythm players and when I grew up 
with a drummer as an older brother, I, I just was used to playing together with that. And I hear mm-hmm. the beats, I think, and I want to lock in with those drums when I'm playing. And there's something about that. To me, the thing I get the biggest rush on on stage is when the band is locked in as a rhythm section, the guitars and the drums. And that's something that Al Petrelli is very into as well, which is why I always love doing the TSO tours that are, you know, just me and Al, because it's, it, no offense to any other guitar players I play with. There's just some, you know, when you marry a certain guitar player exactly like that, it's so powerful. And that's what happened with Chris Oliva. And that's kind of the same thing that happens a lot of times with Al, where we're just, you know, I think it comes from the way your style is or your picking style or something. You'll just play chords and things the same way. Even if people are reading something on sheet music, it's play it some way. For two people to play it really identically, it comes a lot sometimes from the from the soul and from what's in you as far as you are. And I think that's what I do a lot with my my records. And I like to, even with my solo records, I like to have the drums done. I'll I'll record my demos and I'll send them to drummers and I'll get the drums back. And I like to record me to the finished drums. And that allows me to hear the drummer. And because a lot of times, you know, you're with these projects nowadays, nobody's in the same spot. You know, if you don't have that element of that. Yeah. If you're not, (laughs) if you're not able to rehearse with the band then you really can't get that band feel. And even the drummers, no offense to the drummers, sometimes they, literally only hear the drums i mean i know drummers that would record their drum tracks with a click i don't need this song they'll have the song charted out mm-hmm. i'm not going to name names but there's these some well-known drummers i know one in particular that would chart out his drums and not listen to the music when he recorded it's like <laughs> so you're basically only this song you only hear you you know, even when the record's done, you're only going to hear you. I mean, it's really, and it's, drummers are interesting characters. I love drummers. Understatement. And, uh, I think everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody should have one. But there's, <laughs> every band should have one. But um, it's just kind of funny with that. Sometimes I think that that's what they hear. They'll listen to a mix and it'll be like, uh, what do you think? Well, you know, the ride cymbals could have come up. I'm like, that's what this song. That's all you heard. Yeah. That's all you heard with this song is what the ride symbol, but it's, I guess it's just, it's just a drummer thing. God bless him. But I, the first spirits of fire record, for instance, Mark Saunders drums were done to my final guitars. I didn't, you know, Roy Z was producing that record. He want, I was sending him my guitar tracks. I Zonder didn't record yet. So he was doing drums to my guitars and you know, he's a prog drummer and I listen back to it and I'm like, he's thrown it, the beat in a different thing, which is fine. But when you're a guitar player, I still hear my beat. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you hear the song going off the road, you know, and driving in the, in the fucking speed bumps on the side of the highway. I hear it straight, you know, going in between the, the white and yellow lines and, mm-hmm. You know, the speed bump is cool, but it kind of took us, me, off of driving straight. And to, there's sometimes the beats disappear. And I'm talking the actual groove of the song will disappear to that. And this new Spirits of Fire record, what I, I did was I listened to his drums 
And when that happened to the beat, I played straight through, like I changed my guitar parts a little bit to straighten where he didn't straighten. And then I would play along with his fills to make it heavy and become the actual song. So I was enjoying, it was like a video game. How do I, you know, focus what I'm doing on that? And then, you know, Steve went and did his bass over both of us finished that way. And then Steve's bass came in and then created this freaking wall because we all heard this piece that way. And I think it makes, you know, it's, it's a disadvantage of having to do these virtual recordings in different places where you don't Mm -hmm. sit in that room and know when something is heavy when you're playing together and everybody likes what they hear in their headphones at home. Right. Right. There's something about, you know, when you, think about it or it's like all right well what's this going to sound like live and what would be a better live song and i think that's going back to where my my rhythm guitar playing is because i you know i want to see the crowd move and an example of this and it's no disrespect to to this band because they're amazing musicians but but dream theater we um were in brazil playing a monsters of rock and they were playing and i think i was watching the show with um, these Glenn Hughes and the guys from Manowar were on the side of the stage watching them. And you looked in the crowd, and they're playing through these songs, and we just played, and we had, you know, Gutter Ballet, you had 40,000, 45,000 people bouncing to the beat of our ballet. Dream Theater's playing, you had 40 people playing air drums throughout the 40,000. <laughs> 40, people, sense. you saw 40 Mike Portnoy fans yeah crazy on air drums and the rest of the kids were trying to figure out where one was yeah have you, you know, ever tried to headbang like, a seven eight <laughs> and then all, right, of a sudden, right. all of a sudden they kicked into part of enter sandman and one of the songs they were playing and the whole crowd started bouncing <laughs> and i looked over to freaking glenn hughes and i was like see they found one <laughs> <laughs> like i said i love dream theater i think that you know Petrucci's one of the fucking greatest guitar players alive, and they're, they're just amazing yeah. musicians. Everybody they, knows they, live, they live on the Rumble Strip, right? That's kind of like yeah. the to, for your earlier yeah. analogy. They're, they're riding the Rumble Strip, and that's and they do it very well. But it's not that down the middle of the road exactly. type kind of thing. So that that uh, that's kind of where I I kind of see songs in the in the the simple way. I mean, I could write the the muso kind of stuff like that. And one day I might actually do a solo record that is instrumental, which is kind of funny because I went to do solo records as a guitar player and, and sang. <laughs> so I was like, hmm, let me do it. And it's finally on this, the last Spirits of Fire record, I uh, I didn't even, I told him, I said, I don't want to write the, the uh, vocals on this record because the first one, the first four songs on that record, I wrote the entire songs because Ripper was just like, I'm kind of busy doing something. Can you send me some lyrics i'm like you're flying to brazil you can't write (laughs) like how busy are you on a plane flight to brazil but i wrote um the first four songs were basically all mine and and for me it was kind of like gosh it felt like i was doing my solo record because i sing my solo records and i'm like all right i'm doing my melody what i would sing so when we did the new record i'm like look i want whoever is singing this record because ripper and frontiers kind of had a falling out and and uh you know, it was his choice not to do the record. And Frontiers asked me if I still wanted to do one. And I'm like, well, it's kind of odd because Ripper's the reason why I did Spirits of Fire, but I want to do a record. So I did it. And um, 
first we had Todd Hall from Riot was going to sing, but he was busy with the voice. And then I think his brother passed away and he had some other things going on. And he was like, Chris, I can't really put the time in. I think you guys need. And, and we had some cool stuff written on, on some of the stuff that was making it to the record. But um, Frontiers was like, you know, use, we want you to try using Fabio. And, and um, I said, all right, we'll let him write. And even Mark and Steve were like, we'll use whatever singer you want if they do something cool. And I really like what he did. He went in his own way and, and did something different for him. It's very metal compared to what he did with Anger and with um, Rhapsody of Fire. And it's just he did some some really cool things. But I, you know, I didn't want to I didn't want to be the singer on this record, too, because it. Then all my all the, all the things you do start to sound the same. It's like, all right, I got to write a couple songs for a Sabotage record. And it's just like, I have four riffs and they're starting to go on everybody's album. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do I make this work? So, you know, even, I, I didn't even want to write any stuff for my new solo record. I wrote one song during the pandemic that I released called Sick of This Shit, which is pretty funny. Because I like the comedy songs every once in a while just because I live life life has been so bizarre sometimes and if you don't throw the comedy sure. in, you got to throw the comedy in. i think it kind of d snyder always talked about how comedy and the sense of humor it, it's important to have that so i throw that stuff out and i'll release it for fun because i'll, I'll just do that and i was actually recording and finishing a country song i had called pain in the ass that i want to finish and do <laughs> i did some little videos that are on my uh on my YouTube with it. And it's just, I, I like making people laugh. I think that's, I think I'd probably, if I wasn't people, I said, what would you do if you weren't doing music? I probably would be making movies. I may be working in like a zoo or under the ocean or something like that. Or <laughs> I would be, probably, I'd probably be like a, a dead comedian by now because it's just like, I see, you know, life that way, you know, how comedians, they go to that, the press guy that brings out the happy side of life. It's like, you know, but they're really never happy. And then the comedian right. has dark ending. And it's just like, well, I don't want to be the comedian because they don't really seem to have the happiest. So let me try the musician. I mean, and I can uh, go that way and, and, and do what I do. I'm very, like I said, I'm very fortunate to, to have had that home set for me for such a long time. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of musicians spend a, their careers going through this and that and the other thing and there's very few that can look at look at it like a kind of like a, a Derek Jeter where he started with the Yankees and then with, ended with the Yankees you know it's like I had a couple yeah. little off seasons here and there but I kind of look at those as like mental injuries you know it's like I was injured during t t uh, 1991 I was injured then <laughs> I was on the bench yeah. Well, going, I mean, going back to the beginning, since we didn't cover it much, I mean, you've referenced many times that you had a band with your brother and like kind of a musical family and, you know, going back to the foundation of how you learned and stuff. I mean, how did you even get started on guitar? Like, where did you build, you know, because at a certain point you have to kind of find your voice as a musician. And I'm curious to hear how you actually learned. Were you self-taught working with your brother? Like, how did you guys get into that sort of let's be musicians thing? Well, the funny thing is, is I think I always really wanted to be a singer. I mean, I was in kindergarten or first grade and show and tell I sang help from the Beatles. So it was just like I liked singing, but 
everybody thought I sucked as a singer. So it was kind of one of these things where my brother was a drummer. My family had no money to be a drummer. It was $11. You got the drum pad and the sticks to do all the other instruments. It was very expensive. I tried, I think it was clarinet or something like that. I couldn't blow on something all day long. I was like, this, I can't do this. And I just can't fucking do this. So I went to the drums like my brother did, but then I was like, sorry, drummers. I wanted to make music. You know, and I just didn't want to bang on the rubber pad. I wanted to make a song. I wanted to write a song. So <laughs> the drummers always hate me when I say that, but I went to the guitar since we already had a drummer and I thought guitars were cool, the coolest looking anyway. I would look at Wings Over America. I got that record, I think, when I was about five years old. My neighbors bought it for a Christmas present and I would look at the double neck guitar and a Les Paul. And I, I just love guitars. And I go into the stores. My family didn't have very much money and I would just, you know, look at electric guitars. And I think I had a really bad electric guitar when I was like six, but I started taking lessons when I was 10. And then I only took a couple years of lessons. My family didn't really have a lot of money. So by the time I was 12, I was teaching myself. And that's mm -hmm. kind of where I've been from, I have had a lot of great teachers throughout the years, you know, and the people I've played with, but um, it was kind of that. And guitar just always attracted me. I, I would hide down here in our rehearsal room when everybody left the house, I would turn on the PA that we had for our band and I would sing along with records. I'd sing along with Foreigner records. I'd sing along with, with Kansas records. I wanted to sing. But my brother and my bass player said that my voice sounded thin to go into the Ray Gillen thing and didn't think I sang very well. And then I started thinking, well, singing's got to be something that you have or you don't have then. And I figured, you know, I just suck. So I never sang. And when I went to do my solo record, the reason why I started singing was because I was writing songs for people and you write a guitar part and a riff and in your head you had a melody. And sometimes the melody's pretty obvious or something that somebody wrote was identical to what you had. And, you know, I wasn't getting any publishing for something that was in my head or something that somebody heard me do. So I went and started writing songs and I'm like, well, I'm going to scratch some of these I melody ideas down while I'm writing. And then I started listening back and I was like, this is good. You know, it's not terrible. So I did more. And, and I, that's when I first got Pro Tools. And I was like, all right, I can do this a few times by myself without people listening. And I could stink and make it good. So I wasn't pitch correcting anything. I was just doing things and putting harmonies on. And that's when I would record like demos of songs. My song like Music Man that had a full song of harmonies like Crosby, Stills and Nash just because I was having so much fun singing i finished the music man song for the very first time didn't even have my solo deal yet and i swear i cried listening to it because i was so happy to finally be able to do what i think it was i always wanted to do which was sing and the shitty part about this industry is critics and people like that will listen to what i do recorded with my singing and i don't suck you know i'm not the greatest singer in the world but i'm definitely a lot better than a lot of singers that that sing and I'm not saying that as an asshole. I'm just saying it as a fact. I'm not a terrible singer. And 
these critics and people will destroy you at it because you were known as a guitar player. So it was like mm -hmm. an opportunity to come out as a singer disappeared when you spent 20 years being a guitarist. And that's what people know me as. So I do what I do. And it is probably why I throw in the other side of things because I take the critics about as seriously as I'd expect them to take a song that pisses me off because I just, you know, people that sit there and analyze your music like that, it's like, fuck you. Yeah. You know what? It's like, what? I, I get your opinion, yeah. but it means absolutely fucking nothing to me because I do what I do. I mean, the greatest art in the world were things that people hated. You know, the greatest music in the world, even in the classical world, were some of the stuff people hated. Absolutely. There were riots when Stravinsky did The Rite of Spring. People were like, what is this garbage? Yeah. And, and mean, now nowadays, it's like... It's like people can get on their your Zoom and they'll have six people saying how much your record sucks. And it's just like, whatever, that's your opinion. You know, it's, and, and I was so happy to have the ability just to be able to do them myself at home and write that music. And I didn't even care if anybody liked them. It was kind of the thing. And then I got my solo deal and it was just, it was fun. And I, I enjoy making my solo records and um, I just didn't like us and want everything to sound like them. So now as I'm working on a new one, I'm trying to figure out exactly what I want this one to sound like. And I'm, ha I'm kind of like in a rut because I have like 50 starts of songs, yeah. but I don't I only have a few that I've really dove into. And I think that um, I actually want to go and just maybe take a couple days and try to start something and finish something from the beginning and not go back, mm -hmm. go, you know, and just get into it and, and do that. And again, like I said, there's also the possibility that maybe I should just go get a drummer and start to write some instrumental stuff and go have fun with it and do the instrumental record. Or I've even talked to, to Al Petrelli and being like, you know, it'd be fun for me to do me and you to do something like a Hughes thrall, or we did like, you know, some cool guitar rock. And I just, I love this, the, the instrumental, I mean, the, the solo thing, but, there's a lot of the sometimes you you want to do something where you don't have all the responsibility which is kind of another reason why like i said when i did the new spirits of fire i'm like can you have somebody else sing this you know i just don't want to do everything it's it gets exhausting and, and my ears are one ear my opinion is one opinion so if i have a melody it may not be that great you know and i wanted to to let people be a part of what was going on with it you know so it just makes yeah. it makes it easier and more fun. I had more fun recording the Spirits of Fire record because I was able to play more guitar too. I wasn't writing lyrics and trying to get that. I was able to focus on guitar parts and things, and and that was fun. Yeah, that no, that's really interesting because I think as instrumentalists, a lot of us think, you know, for me, for example, I'm a violinist and I play in a band, and I think about okay, if I were to do a solo project, what would that be? Because the expectation is always vocals too you know, it's more accessible. So it's, it's really good to talk about, you know, rediscovering something that you love later in life or changing what you do or introducing something new. Cause it, it can be really easy to get stuck into saying like, okay, I've been a violinist my whole life. So that's what I'm always going to be. And I got to do the same style of music or whatever, but it's amazing that you're developing your other interests too. And jumping into it like that. That's really cool. Well, I mean, it's also hard, too, because, you know, you could turn around now and, and it'd be one of these things where people would put up, you know, Chris Caffrey says he hates critics and it's not, not that I hate critics. I hate having to deal with the seesaw, you know, because you'll read one and 
review. The guy gives a 10 out of 10. This is great. I love this. It's magical. It's perfect. It's this and that. And then next review comes up one out of 10. Why is this guy even saying this is the biggest fucking joke I've ever heard? And it goes up to the other one. Oh, this is decent. All right. I wish yeah. you would do sabotage, Brian. It's a, and it's, it's like, that's where, you know, if, if anything I hate, it's that. It's the yo-yo. So, because if, if opinions are, are possible to be that different on your music, then your music is possibly really good or really bad. You know, it's like the guy who thinks it's bad can be wrong. You know, the guy who thinks it's right can be wrong too. But when these guys that think it's wrong can actually dictate what happens to your records, when they put it in a magazine and then people will be like, don't buy this one. I mean, so it's like one of these things where it's an actual, it comes into the actual effects of what happens with you or, or, you know, who wants to do something with you. Somebody in a record company listens to a record and I was like, ah, I don't love that one. You know, that they, they people, it can affect your actual career. And that's something with that. So I think where that comes in where I just go, all right, well, I'm going to be the artist. Fuck you. I'm going to be the artist. And if you like what I do, that's fine. If you don't like what I do, maybe one day somebody will. And that's kind of how I do that. Like I said, with the new record, I'm not, I'm not having trouble writing. I'm having trouble figuring out how I want it to sound like, you know, it's like I have songs that sound like ZZ top and songs that sound like kiss and songs that sound like Pantera and songs that sound like kicks and songs that sound like Crosby stills. And it's like, oh, okay, but that's kind of where I was on faces. But do I really love any of those songs individually? as much as I did when I wrote those ones on faces or am I just trying to dive for things? So, which is where I said, all right, well, let me just like find something to happen one day and get a lyric in my head. And I'm going to start and finish a song idea and I'm going to go through it. And the next day I'll turn it on. And if I like it, then maybe I'll do it that way. Cause I don't ever have a problem writing, but I have sometimes problem writing things that I like too, you know, and it's like, I want to like what I'm doing. And, and that's always important. When you come up with a song idea, how, how do you uh, hear it in your head? Are you hearing the full kind of arrangement and mix and stuff? Are you, are you kind of doing that layer by layer? You're like, this is a good part. How, I'm going to build and build and build upon that. <laughs> well, I learned from writing and singing because my first solo record, I wrote a lot of those riffs before I sang on them. Yeah. And oh boy. Was that interesting when I went to play some of that stuff live? <laughs> like, you idiot. You can't. It's like, the, you know, wax on, wax off. Rub. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so now, at least I know if I have a really difficult to sing over guitar riff, and when the vocals come in, I'll take it down to something straighter that I could sing over. But that first solo record, I, I did that, and I was writing some stuff musically before now is a lot of times I will write things lyrically first. And I think that's what I may have not been doing at the moment. I don't think I've been, cause the world's been so messed up and like, do I, how do I want to write? Cause I don't want to, I don't really want, I did, I did records that some of it sounded angry and other things. I don't really want to sound angry because I'm not really angry right now. I look at people in the world and I get confused and I'm like, I think the world is pretty effed up right now, but I, I'm not an angry, I'm not angry. I'm happy with, you know, a lot of things that, that, that go on in my life and what I've done. And so I, I kind of want to write good music, but I don't want to be like 
poison happy, but I don't want it to be like, you know, pisses me off the press. So I'm like, how do I find me? And I'm like, let me just go and start to find some things that I, I like that could be just like strong, straightforward songs. And I think that that, uh, is where I'm talking about now where you just find something that happens in one day and go, okay, well, I'm just going to focus on it and, and literally look for something that you did that day and go, I want to find something today that I'm going to write a song about and make it a, a, a task of myself to find something. Like, and it's not that difficult to, um, to write the choruses. I've written choruses on my lawn tractor, you know, it's, it's to get the yeah. rest of the oh. song, get the verses, you know, and parts and how do you, make these verses come you know alive or maybe give double meanings into what's in the song itself and this and that but you know i've written lots of uh melodies and ideas on my lawn tractor in a car or something it's funny you mentioned that I, there's something about uh you know mowing the lawn or, or doing anything that has like an engine that has almost a you know a pitch because I find myself doing that as well, like, you know, writing either melodies or stuff because I have a pedal tone going while I'm doing it. Yeah. So you're walking around sure. with like, you know, you got like a, a G sharp for like an hour and a half and you just got this in your head and you're like, all right, da, 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 like, I can play with my modes and try different like things like that. Um, but when you're writing, does it have to be a moment of like motivation, inspiration, or do you sit down and go, I'm going to write? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> yeah, I just say that because we've talked to a few people that kind of have to, you know, they can't plan to write. It has to be like, a, all right, I'm feeling it now. Drop everything and do Spontaneous. it. Spontaneous. Whereas other people are like, I'm going to write from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. today. Well, I, I, before I was living back up here, I'd come up here on the weekends and do a lot of yard work and stuff. And I had a small digital recorder here and I would just have a drum machine and play riffs and I would pick times to do that and I would go to the city and piece together what I had. I think my problem is now is like I have a lot of responsibilities. I take care of my mom. I take care of almost everything in this house and yard and everything. So I'll get up and I'll be like, tonight I'm going to write. I mean, later on, once it's all done, I'm going to get in my studio. I'm going to write. It'd be like nine o'clock at night and I'll sit down. Then I'll wake up at 1230 at night going, I just fell asleep for three hours. <laughs> I was like, am I going to write? So it's it, sometimes I think it's where you just run out of the energy that you, you, you had when you woke up. It's like, I'm going to do all this later on. And then I think that was the advantage I had to living in the city without having the yard, you know, where I was able to mm -hmm. just focus on that, you know, the daytime. It, actually, I'll tell you something that's funny right now that kind of messed me up as I started going back to the gym, which – I have a gym here behind me, but it's just boring. And I, I wanted to get into the gym and my gym used to be open till 10 at night. And that would have been the time I would have loved to have gone to the gym. Like after eight o'clock at night, it's usually when all the dinner and your art and house stuff was done. I go at eight or nine, go to the gym. It's kind of dead from nine to 10 at night. It was quiet. You figure it was COVID safe, but they started closing at eight. So I go right now, usually two o'clock, in the afternoons when I head to the gym because it's empty and I can get my stuff done before the after workers start showing up. And when I have to get home to deal with, you know, my, my home chores and things. But I think that what that does is it kind of strips me to that tired point in the evening when I've done yard work 
and gym work and business work and my merchandise work. And I've gone to the store and I fed my dog. I fed my mom. I cooked, I've cleaned. And then it's like, okay, so I'm going to go down in the studio and I'm going to do what? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to sit down and wake up three hours later. And it's like, what <laughs> happens a lot of times with it. So I think that's where I say, okay, well, one of these days I'm just going to go and take a day and go this day, I'm going to find something about this day and write it, you know, and you just go, it's easy to do. If you, you just pick a groove and I'll, I'll set my click to a tempo and I'll just start playing, you know, and I'll go through and, and do stuff and then I'll start layering it. And if I could get through layering rhythms through a verse and a chorus and get down a verse and a chorus worth of really bad, melodies and lyrics then i'm like all right let me listen to it the next day and if i go all right this is worth finishing then that's forget it but i'd actually like to get it to a point where maybe i can be like all right let me just finish one i'm gonna try that with a, a couple of things i was last night i was going through i have so many ideas and it's just like all right i can finish this one i'll finish this one i'll finish this one it's like but i don't want 50 songs i want to have you know the right ones yeah. i think are right for this record now and sometimes i'll find one that um I didn't release in the past that I'll be like, all right, this song, I should do this now, you know, because maybe it was something lyric or vocally that I didn't think I sang well enough or I have a better way of singing the melody. So it, it all depends. It's good sometimes to look back for things like pain in the ass and find the country song and do it. But, <laughs> you know, it, it all, it all depends, you know, it really all depends. And sometimes it's one of these things where I just bought a little, um, boss i had a boss guitar synth with the uh, midi thing on it but it's always such a pain in the ass to keep that thing working and i uh hadn't had it plugged in and there's a little boss synthesizer pedal that i got which is really cool it's got like hundreds of synthesizer sounds in it that you get out of pedal. and that kind of thing is so amazing what just changing the guitar into something else will do for your writing. Yeah, for creativity. You know, it's sure. like I'm, I play keyboards, but I don't play keyboards enough where I'd be happy writing on them. You know, and I think that when you're able to change the personality of a guitar completely, and that had worked a lot with some of my original solo record writing when I had that guitar synth, I was kind of changing the personality of the guitar through synthesizer <laughs> sounds and that became fun. And um, I think that that pedal is something that I, I'm going to have a lot of fun with in the next couple of months. I just got it, but I've been messing around with it and it's fun because you create a whole orchestra of sounds behind you with it. And it's just, it'll, it'll be things that could, I think a lot of cool ballads and emotional songs and even a lot of cool, really like deep, dark, heavy songs I've written have been placed around these crazy, weird synth parts I wrote on guitars. Yeah, no, that's that's a, I would agree. I mean, a lot of times just changing the sonic palette or getting a sound will inspire you to have a melody or, or something. It's, so that's that's really important. Well, I mean, it's like you got the eight crayon set or the 64 crayon set. What pictures, you know, what are your pictures going to be like? And the more right. sometimes you can do the greatest picture in the world with two colors. And sometimes you need, you know, as I do art all the time, you need all the paints. So it's like I got 100 million paint oh my gosh it. i do my art here i like doing my art i used to have i have art tables a couple of them and 
I always felt like I was so disconnected from the world when I did my actual art, like the sea glass stuff or, or other things. So I'll sit here and I'll do things and I'll, I'll make them here like that, that thing or like this little Easter bat. These are all little pieces of glass that are cut. So I'll just oh my here, gosh, I'll cut pieces and I'll make glass or, you know, this is all glass on an Easter egg, but there, there's all kinds of really cool things that I've made for people. And I, I like sitting here and doing it because I can put on sports or put on TV or, or whatever. And I can, I don't feel like I'm disconnected from the world sitting at this bar. Plus it is a bar, even though I'm not drinking, it's a, it's a positive kind of scene that kind of reminds me of a lot of places I've traveled. So it's just a, there's a really good energy for me to just sit and be creative here as far as the, the art side of things goes, not the music. How long has art aside from music, uh, you know, been a big part of your life. Was that something that you've always done or is that something more recently? This is recent. Uh, I was probably five years ago when I was actually in Florida. I was down there with uh, Jimmy Sturr, the Polka King, because I played in his orchestra and it's my off time. And I was staying at his condo in Florida down in, in Palm Beach. And I was actually out looking for shark's teeth. I wanted to find shark's teeth. And there was this lady who was looking for things on the beach in the morning. Like, what are you looking for? I fear she was going to say shark's teeth or silver dollars. Like, I'm looking for sea glass. I was like, sea glass? What the fuck is sea glass? And it's something I saw my whole entire life. So I asked Jimmy's friend later that night. I said, these people were down there looking for sea glass. He's like, you didn't know? I'm like, oh, he goes, everybody looks for so. All of a sudden, I became like the sea glass hunter. And I was the best sea glass hunter I think there ever was. The old ladies hated me. They would get up in the morning. The beach would be empty. I'd be up there five in the morning with the flashlight, clearing them all out of the, in, you know, the beach would be empty of sea glass. I'd have like 80 of them and I'd have blues and everything. They were like, how did you get those? It took me months to find them. I'm like, I worked a current. <laughs> I was gay. But then I just had that. And then I had, you know, Wilbur, the, the metal fit. And I looked online and there was these little, elephant bead cage things that I was able to find. And I would put little pieces of the colored glass in it and sell them online. And then I just started having so much sea glass that I brought some to a, a TSO rehearsal before the tour one year. And I started making little Christmas ornaments and it was fun, you know, and, and then I just started doing more involved and I get custom orders from people all the time. I was making like, um, there's one TSO guitar. This is, you know, made off of glass and it just went and in a matter of four years. I became, you know, somebody who was doing these tiny little bead cages and necklaces to making, you know, things like this is a birdhouse that most Amazing. of the, most of the, some of the little art things on the outside are not sea glass, but the actual, all the, the glass that's covering it is so and i happen to live in new york which has some of the greatest garbage in the world so it's easy to find up here i mean it's a lot easier to find glass up here than it is down south we have a lot of garbage around so the ocean <laughs> I, I know where to look we have some i have some good spot i can find a thousand pieces in an hour it's crazy and i can find all different i can find all different stages of it because if you want to you know put things on something like this, you need to be flatter. And if you want to do some things you want rounder, but so you could find pieces that are 
less rounded because you know the real sea glass people if they put them in a jar they want to see the really nice well-rounded ones which i know places like that but they tend to be a lot smaller but um yeah it was just kind of like four years ago and then it went to the point where it's like oh i'm gonna do the guy the ghost from booberry and it all comes from me with this and not cutting my fingers off a diamond (laughs) a diamond cutter on a dremel and uh just not cutting my fingers off <laughs> and uh for, our, oh for listen, listeners and viewers uh is there a place where people can find your work and and purchase or, or just see what you're up to is- you know what i what i do with it is most of the sea glass goes on to chriscaffrey.com through what is called wilbur's wonders so it'll be in the metal fence sections there and i'll put them there and i'll sneak the custom stuff there or people if you want something People can order it from there and I take a deposit and I'll try to put it together. And, you know, it's, it's, I try to make it as reasonable as possible, but you know, everything takes a certain amount of glass and a certain amount of time. So, um, you know, I've, I've done some, I, I give a lot of money from these to charity. So I've done some charity auctions of them, which, which goes really well. Wilbur likes to give to children's cancer and to the elephant sanctuary. So we give, money to charities and it's just something fun for me i i I always like making yarn actually in the the uh 2020 year of the pandemic i had made and and sold probably 340 pieces of glass art so it was kind of like when the world amazing world closed down i just was making glass art set up shop yeah and it was funny because i'm always home and and I would leave and go tour with TSO in November and December. So that first year, life was not weird for me right away. Everybody was like off the road and everybody started doing this, the Zoom thing. And they're like, you're going on our Zoom thing. I'm like, I don't want to, I want to get the fuck away from the computer because I spent my time on the computer for all those years when everybody was away from it. You know, I wrote the first, I have wrote the first internet tour diary ever with sabotage back in like 96 it's documented somewhere and we had like one of the first um fan forums on sabotage.com so i was doing the internet stuff years and years and years before it became like really trendy and i just got you know when the world shut down and everybody went to the net i'm like all right you guys take over so <laughs> it's like i'm <laughs> leaving moved on. yeah it's depressing enough watching everybody argue about everything i'm leaving right so i did my artwork and uh can we talk about not to interrupt your your train of thought, but since we brought it up, can we talk about Wilbur? Well, Wilbur, Wilbur has become kind of he's like my my little alter ego. He was a, a gift from somebody, and um, just became something I traveled around with. And I was always taking photos of Wilbur where I was, and then I don't love selfies and I don't love pictures, so I would. Say so if I went, if I met Willie Nelson, I'd go, Willie, can you get a picture with Wilbur? So I'd hand him Wilbur, and there'd be all these pictures. Of, and Wilbur the Metalfin, he just became. I came up with the name Metalfin, and he just became really popular. And I started doing the jewelry and art. And he has his own Zazzle store. He has a Metalfin shop. I have my own Chris Caffrey Zazzle store too. We all have a lot of merch items there. And um, he's just become very popular. You know, there was um. A book company it was gonna do a book for him but uh they started to put it for sale on amazon before i even signed the contracts you know it was oh like my. 
people were like, I, I just put a down payment down on your book. I was like, I didn't sign a car, you know, and my whole thing is, well, the whole thing of Wilbur was a beanie baby, you know? So it's like, I, or Ty, I had not talked to Ty about freeing rights to sell something. Well, I sell things through him. There's art of him not looking exactly like him. And it's like, I've mm-hmm. gone away from having that. And, and, but if I was to use, they wanted to use his photo on the cover of this book. And I'm like, look, do you have permission from Ty to use the photo of their thing? And they hadn't had it done yet. And I'm like, well, when is this going to happen? And it's like, oh, well, we'll take care of it. And I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> I'd comforting. like it done before the contracts are done. And all of a sudden people were like, I just bought Wilbur's book on Amazon. And I was like, you did? So I oh called him up and I ixnade his book deal. And I, we want to do some books, but it's going to be like children's. I have some children's stories about Wilbur that I want to do, but that'll be his own artwork. So it won't be something I have to worry about the the copyright thing because that copyright stuff's very serious. I mean, people don't realize that. Yeah. I yeah. I walk around with the the crisp with a a winter hat on that has the nightmare Jack on it, and an artist did a art of Wilbur kind of to be me with the hat with that little thing on it and. I put some stuff for sale on, on the Zazzle store and Wilbur's little hat had the, the Jack thing on it. And those items got frozen and taken off for sale. And it's something that's that yeah. small, like on a, on a deck of cards there. I think right. I, I think I managed to get a couple of the decks before the, the item was, was taken down to show you like this thing there. That's a, oh, yeah. a, a art. And that mm. little tiny thing is on his head, you know? So that stuff is all very serious. So, and these people had already released this book with Wilbur on it as a beanie, you know, he's a beanie on Amazon. And I was like, that's, yeah. Gotta be careful. I don't that. want that. You know? I don't want to be sued. I, 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 but that's that. Listen, Chris, uh, we're coming to the end of our second hour, man. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this has been it's been awesome. It's been great to hear not only about you know the juggernaut of, of TSO and kind of your experience with them, but also the stuff that that you've been working on and, and your approach to everything. So uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, no, it's been great, great to hang out with you, and 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 as someone that sat behind you on stage many times, and we've talked, of course, and hung out, but it's it was so great to hear your story in a way that even I hadn't heard it, you know, and talk about some of your well, the, experiences. The next, you can go over the next seventy-two hours of my life the next <laughs> time we speak. <laughs> For sure. Well, yeah. it's yeah. We'll we'll definitely have we to do more episodes. There's a lot of other stories. There's a lot of stories we didn't get to. You know, I was in metal church and Doro and I was even, Oh, we got to do more episodes for sure. I was in wasp for five hours, which people don't even know. All right. We're going to leave them wanting more. So we're going to, we have to do part three and four. (laughs) There's always more, but thank you so much. Um, you know, anything else you want to let people know, obviously, you know, check out or where can people find you a good, yeah. A good way for people to come follow you. No, I mean, just keep looking on the, the accurate Facebooks and, and Instagrams. It's kind of, I try to put things on both now because some people have gotten off of Facebook to Instagram and don't use both. So I, I kind of try to put them on both. I don't really do the Twitter thing, although some of these things kind of go off. So a lot of times I'll post onto Instagram on my personal that goes there and I'll try to get to my Facebook music. But 
you know, the, the merchandise things, including like my CDs and I've been making, um, earrings and necklaces and stuff like that recently off of guitar picks, which has been kind of fun. I make them myself. So I get my, my drill and I cut holes and I make these things. So you're actually sitting, you're sitting next to a jewelry factory as well, but, um, yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff is on chriscaffrey.com and the, and the Wilbur stuff is there. Like I said, there's a um, Caffrey's Corner on a Zazzle and the Metalfin Shop is on Zazzle too. And Zazzle's, Zazzle's cool. If anybody out there, you know, wants to release some of their own merchandise and, and uh, you don't have the money to put into a lot of development of single of products and you have a Zazzle's a really good way to be creative and release a lot of different things just so that people may not know what that's about, but it's, it's a good company to work with and uh, they're pretty easy to deal with. But um, that's amazing. Yeah. That's that. Spirits of fire stuff is on spirits of fire, Facebook or frontiers things and TSO, everything TSO was on trans Siberian.com. I think it's trans dash Siberian. Yeah. We'll have links um, in the description. Yeah, and Sabotage is on the side because Sabotage has got a re-release of all the records on vinyl right now coming out. And uh, I think Gutter Ballet and, and Streets had just came out. And um, they're really cool, these re-releases of Sabotage. And, um, you know, all the news from TSO will always be on the TSO sites first. You know, so if I have any TSO news, I follow up tso the next day usually so if you guys if anybody's really anxious to find out tso news it's always best to go to tso's site first and um that will usually be where that stuff pops to but um that's where everything is awesome very cool well yeah thanks again for joining us it was really great to hang out with you and we definitely have to have you come back for part three part four and beyond no no it's awesome thank you i I had a lot of fun now i'm off to the gym and and hopefully all right come up with an idea to write about (laughs) (laughs) 2020-d.com we'll see you next time thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020 please visit 2020-d.com like and subscribe to the podcast you don't miss out on future episodes this week's throwback clip is going all the way back to episode number 29 featuring steve stevens guitar player for billy idol check it out and so we said, well, we'll, we'll form a band. And we placed an ad in the Village Voice, you know, guitarist looking for a singer, bass player, you know, I was looking for everybody. And then um, about two weeks later, uh, Bill called me and he said, oh, do you know who Billy Idol is? <laughs> and I said, uh, and by then, uh, Dancing With Myself was kind of an underground club thing. You know, there was a, uh, it was wow. being played in the clubs. And I said, oh yeah, Dancing With Myself. And he said, yeah, well, we're managing him. He's just moved to New York. And you guys should be, and we did. And um, and but my approach was that um, it was never like, okay, great, I'm going to be your guitar player, and we're off and run because because we came from very different musical backgrounds, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until we discovered our love of some of the glam stuff and Lou Reed and some of the, you know, I was I certainly wasn't a punk rock guitar player, mm-hmm. uh, although I liked you know a lot of those bands and I liked the the kind of English new wave stuff. Um, but I said, I said, look, I know every musician in New York and I'll help you find a bass player and a drummer. And, and then when it comes time from guitar, you know, hopefully you'll consider me. And um, and I don't know if you looked for anybody else, but I got the gig. <laughs> so. Wow. This 
is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.